We turn now to the book of Zechariah, to Zechariah chapter 4, reading from the first verse. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. He shall bring forth a capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised a day of small things? These seven rejoiced to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of these two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? And he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. And God had his blessing to that reading of his word. Well, as we consider here this great chapter of Zechariah, that it is impossible to do it, Justice to capture all that is there, of course. But to add to what was said earlier, we are always looking to see the person and the work of the Lord Jesus in every part of Scripture. That's what we do when we're looking at Scripture. We don't see images like golden lampstands apart from the person and work of Christ. But we are also looking to see the work of the Spirit. Of course, we know that the triune God does not act separately. He is united in all of his works. And so, of course, the, 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 the Son of God works along with the Spirit of God, and these things are together. And the Spirit is always to be found in all the work of redemption, but usually he is in the background as, as his place, as is his, his, the, the way that God in his, his almighty and perfect wisdom has determined But sometimes, every once in a while, God has particular reasons to draw our attention to the Spirit, as he does here in Zechariah chapter 4, perhaps more so than any other place. And so we have this image of the golden oil lamp, or menorah, and we'll speak a little bit more about that, of course, um, in the body of, of this sermon. But the basic idea is that this is about the dispensing of the Holy Spirit. And this is, what is, this is the great gift, this is the great thing that is coming to God's church. And one way that we could think, again, as we're, we're thinking of tools of how to make sense of Scripture, one way that we could think of not only this part, but of all of the great work of redemption, is the procuring of the great gift of the Holy Spirit for God's people. 
We know that Christ is a bridegroom. And you know that bridegrooms, grooms often prospective husbands buy gifts for their brides. Even today, that happens. There's, of course, the, the mandatory engagement ring, but there are other such things in other cultures. You have gifts given, right? Well, there is a gift, you see, that, the, the, that Christ is procuring for us. And it is the greatest of gifts that could possibly be imagined. It's the Holy Spirit. Christ has bought his bride, the Holy Spirit. And, you know, by the way, in, in the gifts that a, a groom would, or husband would buy his bride, they're very often there to, to make her more attractive, whether perfumed or whether clothing or whether jewelry or any of such things, they are there to beautify the bride. They are appreciated by the bride, but they're there to, to, be, to, to beautify. And therefore, they're a gift to be enjoyed by both in that sense. Well, that is precisely what the Holy Spirit is as Christ gives it to his bride. Because we're, we're not the best-looking bride. He, he doesn't care about us physically so much. What he's talking about, of course, is holiness, we don't have any holiness on, on ourselves. But the Holy Spirit, you see, is the spirit of holiness. It is the one and only thing that is going to make us holy. And, and if Christ is there and he's got this ugly kind of prospective bride, and if he's ever going to make this bride to be acceptable, he's, he's, got, he's got some work to do. And what he can do is hand the bride this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit, and she will be made wonderfully beautiful. She will smell good. She will look good. She will be clothed with righteousness. She will have the greatest jewelry ever imagined. It will all be because of the Holy Spirit. Now, in his plan, it doesn't happen all at once. It's a process. But we know on the last day, when, that, when the, the wedding happens, she will be radiantly and perfectly beautiful. And it will be because of the Holy Spirit. And so we think, as, again, this is the larger picture. Christ is bringing to us his Spirit, in order that we might be given all that is necessary, in order that we might be beautified for Him. Now, among other things that the Holy Spirit enables us to do, it enables us to do the work that He calls us to. And that's more to the point here in Zechariah chapter 4. The people have been called to this comprehensive restoration of, of the, the worship of God after being kicked out, the place destroyed, it all lying completely desolate for. For, for 70 years, and now they're trying to come back and to, to do this work of rebuilding the temple, among other things, and all that goes along with it. And there don't seem to be enough resources. There doesn't seem to be enough will to do it. There doesn't seem to be enough wisdom to do it. There don't seem to be enough resources to do it. They look among themselves and they wonder, how is this ever going to be done? I'm sure they must have thought, you know, Solomon, in all of his glory, had the resources that his father David, you, you look back at those numbers, of all the gold and silver that he laid aside, it's almost beyond imagination. Of the workforce that he had, of the, the skilled people that he had to do it. And you say, okay, I can maybe see how that happened under David and Solomon. But Zerubbabel was looking around at the motley crew and the, and the few resources. And he was saying, I don't know if this is going to happen. And in his goodness, God speaks a word of encouragement to Zerubbabel. And that's what this chapter is about. It's in a word of encouragement to him that God is with him and he is going to provide the resources and the most important one, the only one that matters in the end, he's going to send the power of his spirit to do it. 
Now, the spirit is invisible. It's easy to leave him out of our equations, isn't it? We, can, we don't see him, so we're not adding him into our equation. But as we'll see, if we leave him out, we're leaving out by far the greatest power the universe has ever known. And it is a great disservice to the glory of God. Well, the title tonight is God's Spirit, the Source of All Power. And I have just three, uh, three points. First, do not look to human power, but to God's Spirit. Secondly, God will supply us with His Spirit. And third, the mighty works of the Spirit are not immediately seen. They're long, so I'll repeat them. Do not, the title is God's Spirit, the source of all power. First, do not look to human power, but to God's Spirit. Second, God will supply us His Spirit. And third, the mighty works of the Spirit are not immediately seen. First, do not look to human power, but to God's Spirit. In verse 4, so I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, that's very often taken in isolation, but let's, let's take it together as it is uh, here. What is he speaking of? Uh, of course, God is speaking of human might and human power, not divine. The problem is that he, the, the issue is that this human might, human power, the leaders of God's people didn't have much of it in those days. There wasn't much might, not much power to be seen, but God assures him that this is no problem. And I think that we have to assure ourselves that that is very true, that the most significant, the most important things that have ever happened in the world have happened apart from any human might or human power. They happened because of the Spirit of God. That's true in creation. There was no man around to do it. Uh, Genesis 1-2, the earth was without uh, form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We know that God's Word and Spirit worked together, and there was no creature with them just making the entire universe out of nothing. Uh, Just, again, a, a, a very, very brief list, but you could say the same thing with the creation of Scripture. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. How do we have this this word? It is because of the Holy Spirit. Or like the resurrection of Christ. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for the, the sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit. The same Spirit of God brought Christ to life, who is dead. He's able to do such things. And generally speaking, for all of us, if we are regenerate, it is because we know that we are born dead in our sins and trespasses. We might as well be speaking to a corpse apart from the, the Spirit of God. But the Spirit of God works upon us in His mighty way. In John 3, 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see how that goes? You can't tell. The wind, when, a, when the branch out there, there is, it's very calm at the moment, but if there was wind, you would know it, not because you felt it directly, not because you saw it with your eyes, but because you would see the branches swaying in that. You see? You see the effects of it. And, and Jesus' point of that is that there are enormous effects of God's Spirit. 
He completely changes people from the inside out, and you will notice those effects. His spirit is that powerful. And perhaps most directly in view at this point in, in Zechariah is empowerment for God's leaders. This is no, by no means an exhaustive list, but I think this one is particularly relevant, that if God's people are led right, they must be led by those who have the spirit, are led by the spirit, and this is what God does. In Numbers eleven seventeen, as Moses is overwhelmed, he cannot deal with all the people. He promises that he'd give his spirit to these elders that are appointed. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you will not bear it yourself alone. So if you're going to have leaders, if God's people are going to be rightly led, it will be because of the spirit. All these things down to to his power. And I think if they were to think about it, you know, if Zerubbabel and the others were saying, how are we ever going to do this thing? How are we ever going to rebuild the temple? I think if they were to, to think about even their most recent history, they would say, wait a minute, God is able to do this. And the question is, how did they ever find themselves back in Jerusalem? Last time I heard, last time I looked, they had been taken captive by the greatest superpower the world knew, taken against their will, and many of them killed and brought to Babylon. And they were prisoners there. How is it that they find themselves back in Jerusalem? The answer is the Holy Spirit. There was no human might. They did not organize themselves into a wonderful armed band and break their way out of Babylon. It was not that at all. Now, I would say, incidentally, they already had the precedent with, with uh, Moses and Egypt. You know, again, there was no great army. It was merely that God worked these miracles through the Holy Spirit in order to make Pharaoh change his mind. But more specifically, for them getting out of, out of Babylon, it's as simple as God moving upon the heart of the ruler. In Second Chronicles 36, 22. Now, in the, the first year of Cyrus, they'd been taken captive, they're gone. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom. And it is about the most unlikely proclamation. Here it is. And put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Woo among you of all of his people. May the Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. Simple as that. He said they were going to be there for 70 years, and they would have been there rotting away forever, except just like this, he puts in the heart of this pagan ruler, the ruler of the whole civilized world at the time, and, and that was it. The Lord has commanded me to build him a temple in Jerusalem. So that's what I'm going to do. So who wants to go do it? It's as simple as that. So now they find themselves back in Jerusalem. Why are they imagining that God doesn't have the resources to, to enable them to complete that work? When he could turn the heart of Cyrus just like he will, just like a branch in the wind. Well, I want us to see that that is precisely the point that the hearts of all men are just like trees moved in, the, in that way that the Holy Spirit whenever and however he wills he is able to do those things and nothing and no one is beyond his reach now the particular point that God is making here he says in verse 7 who are you O great mountain before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain and he shall bring forth a capstone with shouts of grace grace to it now, I thought he was making a temple. What is this mountain? Well, it's not a mountain, of course. It's on the temple mount of Jerusalem. 
But the point is not a, a physical mountain. He's taking it in the very same sense that you and I would today. When we, we, we say we make a mountain out of a molehill, or when we say when we think of some enormous work that is looming in our future, and we, we think of it as a mountain, that is precisely what the Lord is saying. This mountain, you see this mountain of work that you have to do? That's exactly what it is. This mountain of work that you have to do for the temple is going to become a plain before Zerubbabel. Because I, the Lord, am going to make it happen. And he's going to lay that capstone. Right? That's the last thing done. The capstone laid on the top of it. You can, the work is going to be completed. God is able to do such a thing. Through the power of God's Holy Spirit. It will all be cut to size, this great load of work. And it will be conquered. That's in perfect fulfillment of Isaiah 32, 14. Because the palaces will be forsaken. The bustling city will be deserted. That is what happened the forts and towers will become lairs forever, a joy of donkeys, a pastor of flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness become a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. And what he's saying is that this desolation will remain precisely until the moment the Lord determines to pour out his Spirit, and then all of a sudden it becomes that fruitful plain. Again, the picture of a desert, it is. Um, I'm not exactly sure how this goes, but I think that God, in His His providence, has various little plants that are always there, but you can't see them unless there's water. But at the moment that it rains in the desert, all of a sudden you see all these little wonderful green plants, sometimes flowering plants that you didn't for for weeks. You'd been in this desert and hadn't seen them at all, and that is precisely what He is saying that His people will be like. That even if they've been in a place of desolation, even if they've been in a place, I don't know, maybe like contemporary England, with tons and tons of empty churches and dying out churches and, and all the rest of it, and we a tiny minority, that we are like a desert awaiting the moment in which he calls forth his spirit and the whole desert becomes in bloom. It is possible. Now, if that's all the case, if what he's saying is that this enormous work, which in Jerubal's mind was a mountain, and we cannot possibly underestimate it. He was not actually making a, a mountain out of a molehill. Again, we're, this is something that, both, that David and Solomon, in their enormous resources, it was still a significant undertaking for them. But if he's saying that this is going to be a plain, it's going to happen by my spirit, then, then what's the next thing that Zerubbabel might be thinking? Okay. So if God's spirit is going to make this happen just like this, the only question in my mind is, is he, is he going to give me that spirit? Is he going to make this spirit available? Is he going to give, pour that out for me? Because now that's my only problem. I've been cured of my anxiety and my desire to use my own might, but now I'm wondering whether he really is going to provide the Holy Spirit. That's the point of the great image of Zechariah 4. So secondly, we have the promise that God will supply us his spirit. In verse 2, the angel said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it and the stand, on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps, two olive trees by it, and one at the right end of the bowl and the other at the left. Now, as I said, we, it's just starting with what we know. That's why we began with the other part. Starting with what we know, we know it's all about the Holy Spirit. That is what is the main point. And we know from numerous other places in Scripture, too many to tell, that oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. So we have this thing that its main point is to be an illustration of the Holy Spirit. And then we have this oil that we know is a picture of the Holy Spirit. 
And then we have, so we have in this bowl flowing to the golden pipes, to the seven lamps that gives them light. And we have these olive trees, and we know that olive trees produce the Holy Spirit, or the, the oil that pictures the, the Holy Spirit. All of it centered about it. And the question is, without getting too caught up in the details, what are we being told? What we're being told, notice that the, the bowl was not empty. The bowl was not half empty. The bowl was not running out. It was not that some of these seven lamps were lit and the others had run out of oil. In fact, rather, the picture of the continual supply of that oil was being given, of these two, uh, these two olive trees continually supplying that oil. The point is, and it's the most encouraging point that, that could be imagined, God will most certainly supply his people with a constant supply of this good, wonderful oil of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. The oil is not going to run out. Now, again, if you're a secular person, if you're a worldly person, and you don't really know about the Holy Spirit, then I guess that's not among your anxieties. But I think the longer that we live, the more that we know as Christians, we maybe come to the point in which we say, you know what, everything depends on the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I could make a song and dance up here. We could, make, we could go get a flat screen and I could give you a nice sort of presentation to jazz things up. Maybe I'd, we'd have a puppet show or something like that and I could entertain you. And all that would be done when I realize that the Holy Spirit has left us. And, and there's, there's no supernatural thing going on and we've got to find some sort of natural thing just to keep things going. And so my anxiety, if I have any anxiety, is what about the Holy Spirit? Is, is God going to be with us? Is he going to provide the power? Is he going to provide the work that is necessary for all these things to happen? And, and the word for us is the oil is not going to run out. Matthew Henry says, This is all to show that God can easily and often does accomplish his gracious purposes concerning his church by his own wisdom and power without any art or labor of man. And that though sometimes he makes use of instruments, yet he neither needs them nor is tied to them, but can do his work without them and will do that rather than leave it being undone. And I think that absolutely captures the basic truth of it that we must be assured that God is able and willing to carry out his work. But I think there's one thing that maybe he left out. Um, and, and that is, the whole chapter has everything to do with God using a human instrument. Zerubbabel, that's the point. It was made as an encouragement to Zerubbabel, and it would seem a very strange thing if the image was exclusive of any human instrument whatsoever. And so probably somewhere in that image, there is an inclusion of the human instrument being used for God's purposes. And I, I think that's what we find. I think we have this, this picture of God's perfect design for his church. We have these lights that are pointing to the church as we are light in a dark world. And you know that in Revelation picks up on this imagery. You probably remember from Revelation 1, there's a picture of Christ. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. You see, there's Christ in the midst of his church. He is with us. And then there's a supply of oil, this inexhaustible supply of God's Holy Spirit feeding them. And we know that the Word, now we, we understand, again, don't think the Spirit ever comes apart from the Word. The Word and the Spirit are inextricably linked. You never have one without the other. And so God's people are being constantly supplied with his Word and with his Spirit. And the question is how? You have the bowl, the supply, 
And you have the end result, the light. What's in between these golden pipes? That's what Jonathan Edwards actually thinks are the human instruments. The, the, in fact, the ministers. Uh, we'll save a little bit more a little bit later. But the human instruments by which this wonderful gift of God's word, and of course his spirit comes with his word, it comes to these human instruments. And maybe Zerubbabel could then imagine himself as this instrument. No, it's, it's not the source. No, it's not the outcome. No, it's not the light itself. But it is the conduit through which God does his great work. And God uses human instruments for such things. Well, we can be assured that God is not going to take, as David cried out in the psalm, take not my dear Holy Spirit away from me. He's not going to take it away from his people, from his church. And thirdly and finally, we have to see that the mighty works of the Spirit are not immediately seen. And, you know, as we're building this picture that what is necessary is not human might, but by God's Spirit, wonderfully we have this assurance that he's going to give us that Spirit. But we have to see that the evidence of it is not always seen immediately of all that the Spirit is doing. Words of verse 10. Who has despised the day of small things? Now, these things, that's, I hear that so very often, actually, by very good men in this country. And, I, and absolutely, I know exactly what they mean. It's sometimes taken in isolation just to apply to us in the days of spiritual deadness and decline of these small churches and declining things and all the rest of it. We should not despise it. We should not worry too much about it. It's just it's the day of small things. Don't despise it. Be content with our lot. And again, I'm sure there's some truth in it, but notice about how the verse goes on. For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven, the, the churches, God's people are rejoicing to see the plumb line. And what is it? It's a builder's tool in the hand of Zerubbabel. Praise God. He has raised up Zerubbabel and he has a building tool in his hand and he is about to rebuild the temple. It is not a, a contentment with small and pathetic things, but rather an understanding that all the small beginning of merely having a tool in the hand is going to bring to greater things. Those who receive this idea of not despising the day of small things, it's not because they're at a steady state of small things and it's going to be that way. It's because they already see the foretaste. They already see the evidence of what is going to be a magnificent work. But it's just it's not all of it is visible. All they're seeing is the beginnings of that. And this is the situation here. We cannot forget, as we conceive of these things, that this is an encouragement to Zerubbabel. He himself doesn't think of himself as being much. He doesn't think of the work as being much. But God's people rejoice that they see this instrument of building, even of measurement, to begin the building as an affirmation that God was going to carry out his promise. And, and it is an affirmation and encouragement to those who would take on the most ambitious things for the glory of God and for the good of his people. Now, the outcome of those things may not be present. You can't see it all. And the Holy Spirit sometimes does a lot of work beneath the surface in people and in churches before there's much to show for it on the outside. But he's saying, don't, don't despise these days of small things because they bring to, they are linked with that which is yet to come. And again, as I, I say, secondly, or not secondly, but within this, this third point, B, I guess, 
This verse has nothing to do with those who are forever remaining in the day of small things and are happy about it. These are the small beginnings. It doesn't look at what is going to happen, but the point is that the Zerubbabel will actually live to see the thing completed. Because that's what it says in verse 8. The word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple, and his hands will also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Basically, he's saying, look, uh, well, he's an angel. I, I don't think anyone's doubting whether he spoke. But just like any prophet, if, if, if perhaps Zechariah is now speaking in the, in the first person, look, if, if that doesn't happen, you know that I'm not a prophet. You know that this is the word of God. But if I am a prophet, if this is the word of God that is being spoken to you, you'll know it because Zerubbabel, the same one who laid the foundation of the temple, his hand will also complete it. That is an amazing promise. And he's saying don't despise the day of small things, not because he's going to be stuck in that day of small things, but because this is only the beginning and the work will be completed. It is an assurance to those who take on the most ambitious things imaginable for the glory of God that he will be with him. And that those days of small things and beginnings will yet be seen to be in their completion. So the mighty works of the Spirit are not always immediately to be seen at the outset. And we should not lose heart because of that. Now as we think of this, this whole idea then of uh, that God's Spirit is the, the source of all power. And we take great encouragement from the reality of that and that that he assures us that we will have his spirit, and even if we don't immediately see the evidence of it, that this is what's going on, we should, I think, first of all, take heart. It's the main thrust of the message. As it was given back then, and I think it's the main prime application to us now, we should take heart. You know, John 16, 7 said this remarkable thing to a people. Jesus was leaving them, and this is what he says. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. How could that be, Lord? For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And he's so good. He's so powerful. He's so wonderful. It's such a great gift. You can't, can't wait to show you. It's almost, again, like that excited husband or bridegroom that has bought the most magnificent gift imaginable. And saying to that bride, can't wait till you see this. You will love this gift. And this gift will be the greatest thing. So much so. So much so that you will be comforted in my absence. Because there will be a time. The time of the church's betrothal. The time of the church's engagement. Where the Lord won't be right with us. This engagement won't be consummated. But I will give you this engagement gift. And it will be the greatest engagement gift ever. Is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it will be so great. That it will, it will, it will reassure you. Even in my physical absence. And I would say further that so many of us, you know, and I'm thankful that we're not a callous people. We're not a callous church. But so many of us would be in the category of easily discouraged. And most of the rest of us would surely be in that category of subject to discouragement, aren't we? It's the same problem we discussed in the Luke sermon last week. We look at what is in our hands and we say we can't do it because we can't. God has designed it to be that way. We don't have the resources and the only question for, for you, that my, what I'm posing to you is, where is the Holy Spirit in your estimation? You're doing inventory, you see what's around, maybe I'm coming here to this, lead you in worship, this most wonderful thing, 
to lead you in the word of God, to, to feed you this golden oil. And I look around and I see a psalm book and I see a hymn book and I see some, some book here and I, and I see some notes. And I do this estimation and I say that is not sufficient. This will not bring people who are dead to life. This will not feed those who have come hungry. And the question is, where is the Holy Spirit in that estimation? If you add the Holy Spirit into the estimation, all of a sudden it is more than enough. Apart from him, it's nothing. And you can apply that for each and every one of your vocations, each and every one of the things that God has called you to do. If you leave the Holy Spirit out of that, that estimation, it's not going to work. But if you include him, there's nothing that is beyond you. Every mountain that lies in front of you, and I know some of you have mountains in front of you. Every mountain in front of you, if you are serving him faithfully, if you're in the way of holiness as you're going through these things, they will be a plain before you because the Holy Spirit is able to do that. And I think mainly I would say this in the larger picture. Some of us are discouraged as to where we are in our holiness and our sanctification. And, we, and sometimes for very good reason. But in linking what was said to Zerubbabel with Philippians 1.6, you, you know what Philippians 1.6 says. Being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, we're not just talking about projects. We're not just talking about work that needs to be done. We are talking about ourselves because that is God's project with us. His project is that we be complete, and that should be ultimately our priority. And we again, we look at ourselves and we say we're not complete. Far from it. And how is it ever going to happen? He who began good work, you will be faithful to complete it. And here's where Zerubbabel is a type of Christ. You see, the same one who laid the foundation He's also going to lay the capstone. What's the temple? The temple is not physical. The temple is the people of God. The temple is you and I and all the people of God that have ever been. He laid that foundation and he himself will lay the capstone. It will be completed. The power of the Lord will do it. He will accomplish this great work. And we need to be encouraged to know that that's the case. Take heart. Another application is, secondly, that we should depend upon the Spirit. We should certainly do that. I'm sometimes grieved when the Reformed and Presbyterian churches are somehow considered unspiritual. I have a couple of pet peeves. I have a pet peeve. It seems like everyone gets saved in a charismatic church and then comes for perfection and is built up in the faith and doctrine and so forth in a Presbyterian church. Why? Why can't they be saved in a Presbyterian church? And so we pray, we cry out to the Lord that he would send us those who are being saved and that the gospel would be proclaimed in its, in its clarity, both from this pulpit and from all the things that we do in our individual lives, that that would be, would be an exception to that rule, if there is such a rule. I hope there's not. It shouldn't be that way. But I think another pet peeve is that charismatic churches are supposed to be spiritual, and we're not. And I don't, I don't see that. I, I take even higher umbrage to that. Uh, there, there is no way that that should be the case. No way. Um, the, the Reformed faith is the religion of the Holy Spirit. Calvin was the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Owen was the theologian preeminently of the Holy Spirit. Edwards was the theologian of the Holy Spirit. And we are the people of the Holy Spirit. And we don't cede that to any church at all. Rather, it should be... Now, of course, if the standard that we're being held to is spontaneity for its own sake or bordering on chaos, well, of course we're not that. We don't want to be that. Because God, the God that I see in Scripture, is a God of order. He never changes. And we're never going to change just for the sake of change. 
We change in order to bring our worship and, and ourselves into further conformity with his perfect standard. But there's no virtue in just simply change. But if, on the other hand, the problem is that the charismatics sometimes want the spirit apart from the word, and that is the problem. They want a spirit apart from the word. I, that, that's impossible. They don't, that doesn't happen. Every once in a while, maybe Reformed people want the, the word apart from the spirit. And we call that formalism. And that's a dirty word around here. I hope it always will be. We're not formalists. This word doesn't work apart from the spirit. You know, I mentioned Calvin, mentioned Owen. You know that they said things like, apart from the spirit, the Bible is a dead letter, having no power at all. You might as well throw it away. Okay? Reformed theologians, the best reformed theologians that have ever lived said such things. And we have to believe it. And the question is, do we believe that? Do we believe that apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, this word has no power? We need to. Do we pray for the word and the sacraments as if it were true? Is there the excitement because there's something profoundly spiritual and truly supernatural? Not the multimedia extravaganza. Not the puppet show. But something truly supernatural is happening because the Spirit of God is answering our prayers and is being poured out on us. That's the excitement that we have in this charismatic with a small C church. There should be such. Do we consider our own lives and say that we need to be continually filled with the Spirit, like it says in Ephesians 5.18? And do not, and I changed the translation just a little bit to to reflect the sense, and do not be getting drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be getting filled with a spirit. That is an ongoing action. And how is it? What, just working yourself up into a charismatic frenzy? No, it defines it in the absolute next verse. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. It has all to do with the word of God, with right worship, with content. And that's the way that we're filled with the spirit. And... You know, it affects our, as we say, it affects the way that we look around the world, the way we see the world around us. And we should look out into the world and say, you know what, should God please, he could, he could turn the hearts of thousands to himself in an instant. He, he could do it. We, could, we, can, we see a desert, yes. But we're so impressed with the power of the Holy Spirit. We are so convinced that he has this kind of power and authority. We know that at any moment he could change the hearts of men just like the wind moving through the branches of the trees. And in particular, we pray for our children and for our children's children and through all the generations that it might be true of them what is said in Isaiah 44.3, I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. I will pour out my spirit on them. And we pray we should out-charismatic the charismatics when it comes to our esteem and our dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, I have a very specific, finally, I have a very specific application for ministers. And it's this, ministers should be communicative of spiritual good. And to defend what would seem to be a very particular application, I'll say this, there are many ordination sermons preached And very often there is only one or two ministers present. Well, in the particular 
providence of God, there are very ordinary, often four or five ministers among us, plus our elder, plus another three young men who are taking classes at our seminary. That's a significant portion of us. They, they ought to have. We should have had more applications for us in, in the past, perhaps. But let me just say what I, I've, I've said on another occasion. Jonathan Edwards preached on this particular passage in an ordination sermon in Zechariah 4. It's called Sons of Oil, Heavenly Lights. And he picks on this idea of the golden lampstand and Jerubbabel and of, the, of the, the pipes. And this is what he says. Ministers of the gospel are those that are improved by Christ as means and instruments of the spiritual good of his people. Conveying the golden oil to the candlestick or communicating grace to his church. See, that's, that's the work. We're instruments. We're conduits of the spiritual good. And that we should be communicative of it. The greatest gift that could be communicated is the Holy Spirit. And, and Edward thinks that that is what is happening in this picture in Zechariah chapter 4. The communication of that golden oil or divine grace to God's people is more especially that which pertains to the office of ecclesiastical officers and ministers of Christ. Elders and ministers. Being the grand design of their office and the work and business they are devoted to. Ministers of the gospel are said to be ministers of the spirit, which is the thing signified by the golden oil. We ought to think of ourselves as those by which Christ is communicating this wonderful gift to his people. By which this divine grace, the Holy Spirit and the word that goes along with it is being communicated to his people. And what attribute then should characterize a faithful minister? The answer for Edwards is the word communicative. They ought to be communicative of spiritual good. Now, of course, that involves work. Another thing, this is what he says, another thing that is taught in the text is that ministers ought to be communicative of spiritual good. The olive branches are represented not only as constantly receiving the golden oil from the tree, but constantly communicating it to the candlestick. Not that ministers are able to bestow this precious gift of divine grace to their hearers of themselves, but they are to be diligent in the use of proper means and endeavors to order to it. They should be, as the apostle says, didacticoi, apt to teach, lovers of the souls of their hearers, earnestly desiring and laboriously seeking their spiritual good. And brothers, I among you need to be encouraged to remain diligent and, and single-minded in this great work, this great calling. We need to be reminded that the only way that God's people are going to receive this glorious gift in the, in the amazing design of God which sometimes baffles me. The oil is here. The people are here. And the only way that it gets there is by the human instruments. And therefore we have to be diligent. Therefore we have to make use of what has been given into our hands. We have to do what we are called to do. And we have to desire to communicate this spiritual good. All these things are possible only when ministers use the means of grace, just as God has appointed them. And the last thing I shall observe taught in the text is that ministers in their endeavors for the good of their churches and congregations should use the means of God's appointment. These are the golden pipes through which these olive branches convey oil into the golden bowl of the candlestick. Ministers should preach the gospel of Christ and not another gospel instead of it. Nor should they pervert the gospel of Christ. 
When God sent Jonah to the Ninevites, he told them that he should preach the preaching that he bid him. Ministers should not preach their own word, but the word of Christ. They should communicate to their hearers a pure, unadulterated word of God, and not be as those who corrupt the word, or add to it their own notions and vain imaginations, or teachings for doctrine the traditions of men. And they should declare the whole counsel of God, without adding or diminishing, and should administer the ordinance of Christ as he has instituted them, without mutilating or adding to them any human invention or any respect changing them and such should be plastered on every seminary wall and every place in which ministers are are going to be if we're going to fulfill that honorable task if we're going to convey spiritual good to his people then we need to use the means that he is appointed and none others now the same applies in various ways to ordinary believers but particularly i would urge you that you pray that those who have been given this task be faithful both to the means and to the methods that God has given, and particularly to the message. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful indeed for the great promises that you gave to Zerubbabel. We're thankful, Lord, that you did not forsake your people forever, but you fulfilled your promise to bring them back. And then, Lord, despite all human appearances that this work of building the temple was utterly beyond them. Yet, Lord, you gave great assurances to the leader of the people, Zerubbabel, and all the people like it. But, Lord, we know that ultimately this only points to the much greater work of Christ building up his people to be the temple, the everlasting temple. And, Lord, we know that it will only be done not by might, not by power, but by your spirit. And how we pray, Lord, that your word and spirit would indeed be communicated in great amount to us. That, Lord, we would depend on the Holy Spirit as none others ever have. That we would recognize if any good thing happens, it is because you enable us. And, and Lord, as we look at whatever mountains are in our, in our future, some awaiting us even tomorrow, Lord, how we pray that we would we would recognize that apart from your spirit, no, we can't do it. But with your spirit, we will be enabled to meet those things. We will be enabled to do all that you call us to do. You never call us to do things that are impossible. Um, Lord, yes, impossible of our own power, but not impossible if your spirit is involved. And we pray, Lord, that he would be. And how we pray, Lord God, that all those who have this great task of communicating, being instruments in your hands of bringing the word of God and the spirit along with it to your people, that we would be faithful and diligent, that we would use the means that you have given to us and nothing else. And we pray, Lord, therefore, that this great work of reformation would happen, that these pipes would be cleaned out and unstopped and made to be useful in your hand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.